0: make the transition from a daily asana practice to what you could call sadhana, which is spiritual practice. Um, One of the key components to making that transition is to develop the more subtle limbs of the traditional practice. So many people, including myself, came into this world of yoga through asana. And at some moment it begins to be appropriate to transform what is purely perhaps a physical practice into a spiritual practice. Some people come into asana as a spiritual means. Traditionally, like thousands of years ago, the asana was, you know, was a vital component of a spiritual practice. But today we come into asana, you know, on Instagram. And, you know, Instagram is probably not the place for deep devotional spiritual practice. Um, But it's a great place to promote things and to spread the word about things. So many people have their first interaction with what yoga is just from something that appears on YouTube, Instagram, or something like that. And that's fine. However, at some moment, after you continue to practice, when that moment is right for you, if you're going to continue to practice for your whole life, the asana practice has to transform into sadhana, a spiritual practice. And the more subtle limbs of what we call the ashtanga yoga method are key to making that transition. Some people will start immediately with interest in the more subtleties. Some people will need to practice asana for many years before that interest opens up. But my teacher, Patabi Joyce, always said, "You know, do asana, 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 until asana leads you to those more subtle um, sort of quests and yearnings within. Every student is different, just like he never told anyone to have to change their diet. But in the moment you asked him, what should I eat? You saw you asked the question. You know, so in that way, um, it's, a, it's a similar thing when we're moving from what is somehow a, a sort of base or introductory level of what yoga as a spiritual practice is into what is the true depth of what the practice can be for you and for everyone who practices. So when I started practicing asana, it took me, I don't know, I want to say about two years before I started to be interested in the more subtle limbs. So for me, after two years of practice, I started sitting. And I've been practicing asana now for you know almost 25 years. And what many people don't know is that I've been sitting for almost the same amount of time um, in terms of ashtanga yoga. I had like three years where I did just a general kind of hatha yoga practice without much instruction. And that was interesting. And in the hatha tradition, they introduced some of these more subtle Practices right from the beginning, which is very, which is very interesting. I, th- I think it's very useful in terms of education, but that's not seems to be what's most popular these days. You know, so I started sitting um, because that desire within me started to open up. One of the things that I strongly recommend is that anybody who practices the Ashtanga yoga method, who's starting to get say halfway through second series, or definitely anybody practicing any of the advanced asanas needs to start opening their mind up to the more subtle limbs of the practice. Even if that yearning is not there, because if not, then it just begins to be asana achievement. So asanas get very exciting, you know, and they look really cool, especially when you post them. People are like, Wow.
1: <laughs> Looks so really cool. Look
0: where your leg is. They can't believe it, you know? And if we just kind of stay at that level and that vibration and you start doing more and more advanced asanas, then asana begins to be um, an obstacle to spiritual practice rather than a foundation to develop a spiritual practice. And that's important to understand, right? So another way to think about that is also not everybody physically has interest in doing these uh, very advanced-looking yoga asanas. Like what my teacher, Patavi Joyce, said is that many people would find what he, uh, you know, would find the peace or the shanti of the practice, just primary series. Great, wonderful. There's no hierarchy. So in Ashtanga yoga, uh, many people think of um, first series, second series, third series, fourth series, sixth series, as like a a school level where you graduate and it's, you know, uh, and then there's increasing levels of difficulty and therefore increasing levels of spiritual advancement. But that is false equivalence, which means that it's not true, you know, Um, and it's a mistake for us to think of the postures as hierarchical, you know, like one leg behind the head is spiritual, and two legs behind the head is very spiritual. (laughs) (laughs) This is is,
1: is just not acceptable. Sure, Stella, go ahead.
0: (laughs) Can we? The legs are a little small to put behind the head when it's <laughs> born. In, in terms of like, like tension in the body being a
1: product of life. Yeah. yeah. And the mm-hmm. being sort of the way that you release. So you release your neck so much. So I guess it's quite spiritual, but in terms of like body, maybe it's the two. But in terms of Feeling? Mm-hmm. Yes. Then what? It seems more that is to be able to have clear attention from the body to such
0: a degree that. It's impossible to judge from the outside looking in. So when we can say, oh, this person, wow, they have no attention, they put their legs behind the head, great. It could also be because they've developed, instead of the fight or flight response, that they've developed the freeze response to stress, trauma, and um, you know they might have developed a dissociation response to stress and trauma rather than a tension and fight response. So you can't judge from the outside looking in. Someone's response to stress can look totally different and can be um, unseen. So we can't say, okay, well, this person, they're doing third series, so they have no tension in the body. There are so many different intersections and permutations and variations of how we each process our sort of life experience that from the outside looking in, it's completely impossible. And we can't also say that well, all, you know, everyone is born flexible. That's actually not true. You know, like they're, they're, we're born kind of, we have a mind, according to yoga philosophy, we, we are incarnate with a whole series of unresolved stuff that we've carried with us from the past. If you don't believe in a life before this life then we could think about that we've been born with whatever our life mission is. And that 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 comes with certain tightnesses, certain obstacles, certain things that will be manifest in the body. And that will just happen, you know? And and that's sort of what we're incarnate to to work with and and, and deal with. Whether we believe it's just this mission in this life, or we believe it's been carried forward from past incarnations. The idea is that we as a being, we we come with a, a certain level of or a certain amount of stuff that we're going to deal with in this lifetime. And it may or may not lead us to putting our legs behind the head, you know? And that's not the purpose, right? But the idea is that if the journey to putting your legs behind your head or journey to backbend or the journey to handstand or journey to any asana leads you into into success in your life mission to resolve whatever obstacles you were born with, to have more peace, have more happiness, have more joy in your life, then that asana is working for you. But if that asana is becomes a source of stress, anxiety, tension, that asana begins to be a source of ego, pride, and tightness, attachment, then that is no longer working for your spiritual development, and it begins to be an obstacle. At that point, what's a wonderful solution is to uh, divest from our attachment to asana and invest in our more spiritual practices, like breathing practices, like meditation practices, um, you know, things like that, that can be very, very helpful in those moments. Make sense? Yeah. So, and it's helpful for ourselves as well, because we can get into a little bit of like the guilt, shame, blame game, you know, when we think about asana, why am I so stiff? Gosh, what did I do? Is it because of this? Is it because of that? Gosh, Oh, look at her body. It's so much nicer than my body. If only I had that body, then I could do this. Oh, gosh, why did I start yoga when I was so old? (laughs) Ah, If only I had started when I was younger. Then, you know, gosh, why did I make all these poor life choices up until now? If only I'd been a better person, you know? Why am I so mean? I'm even mean to myself. Look at that, you know? And then everybody else looks like angels and Buddhas walking around, you know, and then they're there looking at you going, wow, look at her. Wow, look at you. <laughs> and then we can just, you know, like deteriorate into this, this kind of, you know, guilt, blame, shame. So again, a way to work with that is to sort of soften the edges around our asana and 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 kind of dive deep into a practice that is, is it 100% internal, you know, Um so the meditation technique that I will be sharing with you today, uh, I didn't learn from Patavi Joyce. I did get permission from him to go and try, um, but he never taught me the meditation practice. He taught me pranayama and it was very hard. Um, I don't teach it to too many people. Uh, I still do it, uh, but... Uh, there are many different schools of pranayama which are very wonderful and beneficial that aren't as intense as what we do in Ashtanga yoga that can be beneficial for everybody and um, all really levels of practice. The Ashtanga, traditional Ashtanga yoga pranayama takes a long time and um, is kind of very intense. Uh, and and, and um, uh, the meditation that I'll, I'll be teaching with you today, I had to ask Bhattavi Joyce if I could you know, learn meditation from him. And he said to me, "Can you basically asked me, can you sit in Padmasana for an hour? I was like, "Haven't tried." Um, let me try that tomorrow morning. And I made it to like forty-seven minutes, and then I thought that I was going to end my life <laughs> um, from pain radiating from the ankles to the knees. And I thought, "Well, I better make some executive decision and remove my padmasana if I want to walk to practice in about twenty minutes." And it took the—I took about twenty minutes for the circulation to return back into the legs. So the, so I told him I couldn't sit in Padmasana for an hour. And then, and then I said, I still want to learn meditation. And he said, why? (laughs) I'm like, because I'm, you know, I'm on a spiritual journey and this is, I want to learn it from you. You're my teacher. And then, then what he said to me was what use you sit for one hour. All you do is thinking, thinking, thinking what use. And I was like, well, I mean, and I was sitting already, so, so I was I was, sort of reflecting on what I was doing in the morning, and I was like, uh, and I sort of didn't have a defense, because I was like, yeah, pretty much, and he looked at me, and he said, the whole hour spent, your country, your food, your home, your family, your husband, and I was like, I don't have a husband at that time, I was like, I don't have a husband, I had already met Tim, which was interesting, but I was like, I have a husband, but I'm not going to say anything. Um, but I had many thoughts of my country, my family. Uh, you know, strangely, I was also thinking about my Asana practice. I don't know if you've ever tried that meditation in the morning. Like you're sitting and you're like visualizing yourself putting your legs behind your head, and then you're going over how you're going to do this technique. You're like, wait a minute, this is not meditating. And I've actually done that so much, a couple of days where I like rehearsed what I was going to do in my asana practice so much so that I skipped that pose in the practice. <laughs> now that's a real bummer. You know, you sit there, play, spend an hour planning how you're going to do a posture. And then like my system was like, well, we've done that already. So let's <laughs> just so skip it. And I finished my practice. I was like, oh, I didn't even do it. They can't believe it. They're going to do it the next day. Um, so anyhow, that, that's not, that's not our purpose of meditation. Um, and that's something that's interesting. Many people say, I can't meditate because I think too much. Um, so I, but anyhow, I asked what I of said, can I do it anyway? And he said, go ahead. <laughs> so that's the meditation instruction I got from him. Go ahead. So that's not what I'm going to teach you today, but with his blessing to go ahead and sit, I, uh, I've been sitting what's called Vipassana meditation in the Buddhist tradition of uh, um, the Burmese Buddhist tradition uh, taught by um, you know SN Goenka and Ajahn Chah and many other uh, Burmese teachers. And this particular tradition um, is based in what's what will start in what's called Anapanasati, which is inflowing outgoing breath awareness. Anapana, inflowing outgoing sati. Is the Pali word for we translate into English is mindfulness, awareness, um, you know, attentiveness, and it's sort of this neutral uh, kind of objective awareness. Right. Uh, sati has the uh, same root as the Sanskrit word smirti. So, who, who maybe from uh, maybe the Yoga Sutras you've studied before, who uh, is often translated into? Mm-hmm. Memory. Memory. All right. So that's interesting. Uh, if we have sort of sort of similar words and uh, just sort of like if Pali and Sanskrit are, 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 are very, are very like, they're like sister languages, but they're not exactly the same, but um, it's perhaps something like, you know, some of the Scandinavian languages, like Swedish and Danish or something like that. They're very, very close, but there are differences. But if we trace the etymology back, "smrti," thinking about memory is not only memory. And so somewhere along the way, some of the contemporary, um, translations of the yoga sutras, they've lost this mindfulness translation of Smriti we so only have memory. But mindfulness is a very big component of what a quality of mind is in spiritual practice. It's only memory. And we only have memory. only we only remember. But there's a quality of memory. And see if you can kind of unpack what memory is. How How do you remember something? What quality of mind remembers? What do you think? If you had to describe what it means to remember If you were describing that to someone who didn't know what it meant, how would you describe senses? Senses. What about the senses? Well, how you see things. But that's not remember. I'm watching you now, but I'm not remembering. So how do you describe? Hmm. Which means that it was which recall of some type. Which means that it needs to the mind needs to recall and stay present to it. So if you remember something, it's present for you. Think about um, like some really pleasant thing that's happened, like think about the last really good piece of food that you had, right? So it could be the last good dessert that you had. Can you think about that now? Can you see the image, so the mind is present to that? Can you recall the, the scent? That went along with that really good dessert. If it's Tim, that he was here on Monday, he to talk to you about donuts. So maybe you're thinking of donuts. Has anyone ever smelled warm donuts cooking, you know, coming out of the oven? Some, and you can smell it. The mind is attentive to that. And when you remember something, that memory has the quality of mind, which is present and not slipping, right? And that is very similar to mindfulness, presence without slipping. And so we've lost that when we only translate smrti to memory. And when the Buddha used the word sati, he was referring to this ability of the mind to stay and not slip away from some chosen object of attention. And it's very easy to do that when you remember something. But you don't only do that to memory. You can do that to any chosen object of attention. And this quality of anapanasati, this uh, ability of the mind to stay present in neutral objective awareness, is the foundation of almost all of our contemporary teaching of, of meditation that has any, any root or basis in the word mindfulness. So when we talk about you know, mindfulness practices for stress reduction, so I know this is a, a sort of very popular basis of meditation. Um, it comes from uh, the, the, the originator of that, so it was called like MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction. The originator of that uh, series of studies was actually trained in the traditional Vipassana uh, method of anapanasati and the, 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 the deeper methods of that meditation practice as well. So what the Buddha found with anapanasati is that that quality of mind which requires us to stay present and not waver is something that we need to train. If you do not train, it will not come. And this is what we can understand to be the work of what we can see in the traditional eight limbs of Ashtanga Yoga as the work of Dharana or concentration. So when the mind is thinking, we're not mindful. When the mind is distracted, we're not attentive. But it doesn't mean we're failing. In fact, that's the perfect opportunity to work with the mind. If you already had the perfectly mindful mind, we wouldn't need any of the techniques. We would just sit in samadhi. Well, good for you, you know? But we're here because we're not there yet and we're trying our best to employ these techniques so that we can find a little more peace, a little more happiness, this sort of thing. Understand? So Anapanasati, when we work with it, uh, the Buddha discovered that just the effort of trying to concentrate the mind leads us So to the experience of two very important qualities. And these two very important qualities are equanimity. Equanimity is the first one. Equanimity is not a calm mind. And that's very important to understand. I'm going to unpack that in just a moment. So the two qualities that happen with anapanasati: first is equanimity. We'll talk about what that means, but it is not equivalent to a calm mind. Mm -hmm. The second quality which develops is Awareness pure awareness what we could call bare awareness or the ability to see reality as it is versus as we think it should be or as we have experienced it in our past or in whatever colors of glasses that we're viewing reality from. And this is difficult. So why is equanimity not a calm mind? Well, a calm mind is a mind that is balanced, calm, and these are sort of qualities we'd like to think about as developing. But the equanimous mind means that it is not the mind. And this is important, or it is not the thoughts. So you can be equanimous towards an imbalanced mind. And it's just hard to understand that, right? So you can have equanimity towards a storm that arises in your mind. And it's equanimity that we're cultivating. Sometimes the mind will be calm. Sometimes the mind will be agitated. But our purpose in anapanasati is not to make the mind calm all the time. It's to have a tool to remain equanimous and correctly identified in high times, low times, and medium times. And so what that means is that if you don't have the tool of anapanasati, when or some tool of spiritual practice, but very much this anapanasati, we will identify. With the mind when it is imbalanced oh my mind is so you know agitated today it's like we identify with how tight we are oh i'm so stiff what's wrong with me oh i'm so weak what's we're identifying with it and the tool of anapanasati is to create a little bit of separation between whatever thoughts are present and the true self or the seeing consciousness the eye which is the transcendent eye or the transcendent self mm-hmm. so equanimity means uh we observe without getting caught in any story about what we're observing. Equanimity is a field of openness, which simply says, you know, here it is. Mm-hmm. And awareness includes uh, neutrality, objectivity, similar to equanimity. So these kind of work together. But awareness includes a very important quality in it, which is the cultivation of equal parts wisdom and compassion. And with awareness or clear seeing, bare awareness, we can finally have a wise mind and observe this is the reality of this moment. And in that reality, true compassion can arise, compassion that is not sympathy or pity, compassion that is not detached, um, but just true, genuine compassion. Um, And we could we could call this, uh, you know, um, meta is the sort of word for genuine compassion. Now, a lot of people want to jump and immediately, well, this sounds good. I want to generate metta and I want to have a wise mind. That's wonderful. I want to jump right there. But what the Buddha's teaching is very much like my teacher, Pattabhi Joyce Joyce's teaching with asana, is that that's wonderful, but we need the foundation. Without the foundation of this basic breath awareness, we cannot create the foundation of equanimity and awareness and hope to develop um, a wise mind filled with compassion. hmm Okay, so page your question. Uh-huh. Uh, just need a, need in flowing, it. Inflowing, outgoing.
1: Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. So there are many forms of sati, we should say. Anapanasati, inflowing, outgoing, mindfulness, awareness, meditation. Sati is the beginning, is the foundation. Now we could have um, any form of sati, right? But this is found to be the most universal, neutral object of attention. You could also have kaya sati. Kaya is the word for body, so you could have kaya sati, which means you can be mindful of the body. Very, very much asana is this is this practice of kaya sati. You could say, um, and there's dhamma sati, where we become aware of the quality and the nature of our thoughts, and that's considered to be the hardest thing to be aware of. You know, so we'll start with the anapanasati, and the teaching of anapanasati is um, easy to understand and very hard to do. So To have an anchor creates the space of mindfulness. So if you're just generally aware of your breath, this is too big of a space, you know? Generally, right now, you're probably, you will acknowledge that you're breathing, right? So this is not sati. Sati has some specificity to it. So we we need what's called an anchor of awareness and the anchor, uh, the traditional anchor, you could take different anchors of Anapanasati, but the traditional anchor, as it's written in some of the, um, some of the suttas by the Buddha that talk about this are that we should keep our attention in the area inside the nostrils, at the entrance of the nose, um, inside the nose and around the upper lip. So we kind of have a triangle. There's nothing of religious significance about the triangle. Okay, so some people like, oh, the triangle must be related to the pyramids. So the pyramid is on my nose. And I'm like, okay. Like, I mean, objectively, if you detached your nose from your face, it would probably have the shape somewhat like a pyramid. But let's keep the nose on the face. Don't detach the nose. So there's no religious or geometric or sacred significance to the nose. It's just if the lips are sealed, which we're going to seal the lips, then 100% guarantees that there will be some contact of the passage of air when it comes into the body and when it goes out of the body in this area of attention. Understand? It's purely practical. There's nothing more than that. You could bring your attention to your diaphragm, but the reality is we don't always breathe with our diaphragm. You could bring your attention to the back of the throat, but you don't always feel your breath in the back of the throat. You could bring your attention to your shoulders, but you're not always breathing from the shoulders. You could bring your attention to your lungs, but sometimes the lungs are a little blocked and hard to feel. So we take the most universal, practical, easily accessible place to feel the breath. The difference between meditation and pranayama is very important. So pranayama is an active uh, working with the breath. Pranayama seeks to change the state of our mind by changing the breath, which is wonderful. Now, um, this teaching can be traced all the way back to the teaching of Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras, right? That as we work with the breath then different states open in the mind, so it's almost like we're we're kind of working with the the, the subtle winds of our life force. That's what we what, why it's called pranayama or the prana. We're working with pranavayu, the wind of our life force, right? Um, now, meditation is different. And this is important because we can work and work and work and work. However, it's almost like we're peeling away um, the, the most external layers and we're going in, 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 in. And the idea is we, here we have asana and we work with asana to work with the body, to work with the body. Now we work with the breath. We're working with the breath. We're working with the breath. And meditation is no more work with breath or body. Now we work with the mind. And this is the most subtle of all of our incarnations, we could say. Because if we're gone, if the body is gone, then what? Right? Okay, well then, you know, what I mean by gone is imagine the body immobilized. We're still breathing, breathing. Breath is gone, then what? And then people would say, well, then you're dead, right? But, there are, you know, the yoga teaching says that there is a mind that exists without body and without breath. Now we work through that, then we work with, um, you know, the unseen world right? and we work with what will survive this body when this life on this particular plane of existence is no more. And that's interesting, you know, if we want, as, as the yoga teaching says, if we want out of the cycle of suffering, if we want to win our liberation. We cannot only work with body, breath, we must also work with mind. So as long as we're manipulating or controlling uh, body and breath, then the mind kind of gets a little like, you know, it gets a little out because we're doing something. As long as we're engaged in activity, the mind is sort of, you know, not some taking it easy, but because there are other things that we're manipulating, then the mind has only a small focus of what we're working with. And it's only mind we're working with the most subtle. So in this way, asana, pranayama, and then the meditation practice, and in this way we start to reveal what we could call the nature of mind. I got news for you: at the beginning, when we reveal the nature of mind, what you're going to experience is what the all of the the sacred teachings, the wisdom of the East, have called the mind since uh, you know we could since since human beings have involved been involved in spiritual practice, which is you will find that your mind is. Can anyone fill in the blank with that? A monkey, right? And this is I don't know about you, but Like monkeys for me, they can be there, you know, they're cute over there, but I don't like when they enter my space. You don't know, like maybe you, look like wonderful for you, but I have had too many experiences of monkeys doing monkey business. You know what I mean? Like you're eating something. Yeah. Uh, like you're eating your breakfast and then suddenly your breakfast is the monkey's. It's happened to me way too many times to really enjoy, like, oh, it's a monkey. I'm like, stay there. It's just come nowhere near me. I have nothing shiny on me. Stay over there. I've mm-hmm. had monkeys steal makeup. <laughs> what does it want with that? You know, yeah. it's just going to take plastic and put it in the nature. And I'm like, mad about that. I've had monkeys steal a reusable cup <laughs> that I brought with me into the nature. And I thought, this is, I was so. so Non-equanimous about that. The whole thing about that. I was like, well, I bought this to stop waste. And now this monkey has brought this thing I'm supposed to stop waste. And like, all they're going to do is put it into the forest. <laughs> Would have been better had I brought a paper cup. You know? it's just, I'm, I know.
1: <laughs>
0: So monkeys, for me, they can be there. And I'll, and, but our mind is just like that. Like, grasping, grasping, grasping. It's a shiny thing. I want it. You know, what's that donut? Gets me. You know, and it's even worse. Like the mind is just almost assaulted by its own thoughts. You know, we're just we're like here, just trying to concentrate on the breath, and then all these thoughts come in out of nowhere. And do not think that meditation is failing you, but you're coming to terms with the nature of your own mind. So do not think that the meditation is failing you. You're coming to terms with the nature of your own mind in that instance. To know, oh, my mind is the monkey mind is the only way we can begin to work with it, to train, you know, not to hate the monkey, but to begin to understand this is your nature. I cannot, you know, hate you for your nature, but I'm going to work with you. Together, we'll concentrate. Mm -hmm. Then we can understand what is the true nature of mind underneath the monkey mind, which takes lots of time, lots of patience. Okay. So as a yoga practitioner, your biggest obstacle when we practice meditation is going to be your training in yoga? Mm-hmm. So, what are some common things that you think about with yoga um, in relation to the breath? So, like, what 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 do you think when you think like yoga breathing? What does that kind of sound like to you? What do you think?
1: Just, breathing with sound. Hmm? Breathing with sound.
0: <laughs> breathing deep sound breathing. You know. So yeah. Hmm? Effortful, yeah, like, or just conscious, deep, resonant breath. So yoga practitioners already have this association. Deep is good. Sound breathing is good. Short breathing is bad. We already have that in our mind. This is your biggest impediments in meditation. Because what can happen is when you work with the nature of mind, sometimes the breath will be deep. Yes, sure, naturally. But sometimes the breath will be shallow, also naturally. Sometimes the breath will be panicky and short and hot. And that's okay because that would be revealing to you the state of the mind in that moment. But sometimes when the body is still and sometimes when the breath is still, then there opens up a channel to experience the most subtle nature of mind. And if every time you experience that, you take a deep breath, you will block yourself from the deepest meditations that will come to you. And that's important. So if you notice... The breath is deep. The instruction of anapanasati is merely this observe that your breath is deep. That's it. Don't say it's good. Don't say it's bad. Just observe. Oh, my breath is deep. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm trying to
1: control the breath. Correct. You
0: just let it be. Correct. Just let it be. Yeah, absolutely. If it's deep, you observe. Oh, my breath is deep. You just refrain, and this is the equanimity part. You refrain from saying, oh, this is good. Right? Oh, look, now I'm meditating. Because my breath is deep. Oh, this is good. If it's deep, naturally, observe. This is deep. But if you notice, my breath is shallow. What then? This is where the yoga practitioner has a hard time. Oh, your breath is shallow. Your breath is shallow. This is bad. I should do something. I know. Let me squeeze my mula (laughs) And let me take a really deep breath. Here I go. And you can hear the yogis, because you'll hear them. In the middle of the meditation, you know? I'm like, okay, you know, I've got some ashtangis, right? We're deploying the Ujjayi breath right now. We're going to, like, do a private pranayama practice in the corner, you know? Uh, and okay, what the, what the teaching of the Buddha says, if you cannot feel your breath, take one or two, breath, like, conscious breaths, then let it go but not in response to my breath is shallow. The instruction when the breath is shallow is, big surprise, observe that the breath is shallow and take no action. Observe, breath is shallow, that's it. Your breath is medium, observe that the breath is medium. We'll notice all these things about the breath, temperature, depth, rhythm, pace, exact placement of the breath. We can become so specific where the breath is making contact, how it's making contact, But we try to, in the words of the Buddha, experience the Atta Buddha as it is, right? Reality as it is. Reality, first point of contact, your breath. If You cannot experience the pure reality of the breath as breath. What hope do we have to experience the reality of anything else in its pure state? If you can't observe my breath is shallow and let it be shallow, what hope do you have to observe another human being and give them permission to be who they are with all their stuff. Because I guarantee you, the other person is more upsetting to you than your shallow breath, you know, at some moment, or more exciting to you than your shallow breath. So we're working with the quality of mind of attachment and aversion, attachment and aversion. We have an aversion, so I use the, the what we do, you know, our, 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 um, our experience in yoga can demonstrate that. We have an aversion to a short, shallow breath and an attachment to a deep resonant breath, which is good in asana because if you're not doing that in asana, real damage can come to your body. And because the teaching of asana is that we're trying to consciously engage in what you could call bottom-up regulation, where we're changing the state of the body to impact the, the state of the brain. In meditation is different. Meditation, we're merely trying to observe the state of what is and see what happens. Mm-hmm. mm so uh, the other thing that's important is to try not to change your posture too much. You change your posture all the time. Why would you change the posture? What do you think? What are some common reasons why we would change a posture? What do you think? Mm-hmm. The foot fell asleep, that poor foot. You know, so then the foot fell asleep. So we're like, oh, no, the foot's asleep. I should rescue it. So we go on this foot rescue mission. We start wiggling the toe, make sure it's still attached to our body. Then that produces some extraordinary pain. And then we think this is very bad. Then we put the foot over there and then the pain spreads. Then we start with the other foot. Then we're in some weird position and we realize I cannot sit like this. I need to do something else. Then we start putting the foot over here, over there, over here. And then the whole time, all we've been doing is in search of the perfect posture. In search of pleasure running away from the pain. So here's a difference, a qualitative difference between asana and meditation. And I I really mean this. If you sit in a reasonable posture, what is a reasonable posture? For me, that means no lotus position, usually a slight elevation of the hips, no pressure on your ankles, anything like that. If you sit in some reasonable posture that's comfortable for you to start off with, no pain you experience in meditation will lead to injury. That's different than yoga, right? Yeah, I've had all the red signs or red lights and the red signals that in asana practice, I would immediately exit the asana, but all of that come up in my meditation practice. And the one thing that I can say is if you're sitting in a comfortable posture, that's true. If you're sitting in half lotus or lotus, that starts to be too much asana base. There's few people that can sit for a long time in, in parmasana or even half lotus position. If you have either of those two poses or you're sitting in beer asana, these are asanas. So change your position. If you did that, which is why I recommend don't sit in those positions. Understand? You sit with your leg behind your head. No, all right. You got like five breaths. You exit. Okay, you know. Um, and so we try to we try not to change your posture too much. What I recommend: we'll sit for some period of time. You know, um, a little more than little more than twenty minutes and less than an hour. That's How long we'll be sitting for? Okay. Um, and then what I'd recommend is, uh, if you have a sitting practice, try to sit with strong determination, not change your posture, right? If you're recovering from being sick or something like that, give yourself a certain period of time to change. If you don't have a regular meditation practice during that time, what I recommend is you give yourself a total number of times you can change your posture. No more than five, for example, then it's like Sports. You know, like uh, American football, where they got like, like four timeouts, something like that, right? So then like, you got your four timeouts. You got, then you're going to change your posture. You got, so you spent one. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because you don't know how much longer it's going to be. See, I know I'm watching, right? You know? So then you spent one, so you don't know. Oh my God, I don't know. 40 minutes left. I better hold these. I better be good. You know, then you spend them all. And you think, oh no, I don't have any more this is the final posture. Am I going to be here for five minutes? Is it almost over? Or did I just spend them all right at the beginning? And this is what I'm stuck with until the end, you know? So it's good if you do that, because then you'll pace yourself. You'll think, okay, change. And also don't randomly change. So for example, if you sit, I usually sit in just like basic cross-legged position. If I'm going to change my posture, I will usually change to this and then I'll bring it back. Because this keep my legs straight. This works for me. Not everybody works, don't I have the space? Another thing you can do, you can change the feet like that. You can also do bhadakanasana if it's comfortable for you for a little bit and then change back. But then you spent two. Okay. All right. So you change, change. That was two. Understand? Right? If you have a bolster and you can elevate the hips, then maybe you can change to virasana. But I don't recommend that unless you elevate the hips, because that can put pressure on the knees. Sometimes you can sit there for a little bit, go back to comfortable cross-legged position. You have, I really recommend if you don't have a normal sitting practice to elevate the hips a little bit, it will make it more um, accessible, okay? Temperature changes. Suddenly you might be warm. Suddenly you might be hot. You just observe. If you, I've had meditations where I've prepared for cold and then I was hot. Then I had meditations where I prepared for hot and then I was cold. It's only one sit, after you sit regularly, you get to figure out what you're like. But in the in the interim, sometimes you can always be surprised. You know? Suddenly you prepare for cold and then you're just a sweating meditation. Right? When other sensations arise in the body that call your attention, you observe and then come back to the breath. When the mind wanders away, you observe. The mind wanders back to the breath. Teaching is very simple. When an emotion arises, calls your attention, observe. Back to the breath. Never repress, suppress, or deny. Observe, observe. Back to the breath. The pain is very big. Observe, give it a little attention for a moment. You could be objective. For example, you could, you can, um, you know, as long as you're remaining objective and equanimous, you can do things like, you know, pain radiating from the left lower back. Mm -hmm. Scale of one to 10, nine. You you can do that and you just observe pain spreading from left lower back to the right lower back pain level increasing 9.2. right? And then you can start to describe fire, pain like fire, explosions, small explosions, you know, and we can do, you know, whatever it is. It could also be very pleasant sensations, and we would want to remain detached a little bit from that as well, observant, but not attached. So what you don't want to do is, oh, it feels so nice right now. Oh, wonderful, I'm succeeding. Oh, wow, this is so blissful. Oh, wonderful, I'm so good at meditation. Oh, this is awesome. Wow. Then you're completely off-center. You're not equanimous. You're attached to that. Then you'll sit the next time and you'll be so depressed. Oh, where is my bliss? (laughs) Oh, the bliss was so nice last time. This is often referred to as playing games of sensation. You know, so you want to avoid that. Sure, question, Vega, yeah.
1: So I find that like, if I'm sitting and I have a thought and I'm just like, so wrapped up in that thought, like, that's one of the moments where like, I feel like i need even move to like, snap myself out of it, mm. but how do you like, escape being trapped
0: in a thought without like physically moving mm. yourself? Interesting. So as soon as you notice that you're trapped in the thought, that itself has broken the thought. So you just observe, mind is gone, back to the breath. Then you, come, you come, come back to the breath. And then you put all of your attention inside the nostrils at the entrance of the nose. At that moment, if you need one conscious deep breath, you can let it be like and then let the conscious breath go. But in the very moment that you've observed that the mind has gone, you have already broken it. That itself is enough. Then everything else to that is a reaction. So you're change your posture, but you didn't need to change your posture because you already broke it. So the change in the posture was actually a reaction to the thought. Understand? And in fact, changing the posture is even... even so it just gets a little more specific. So what the traditional teaching of Vipassana says is that we don't actually react to anything outside of our own experience. Period. End of story. Even if you think you're reacting to something else, it's always... Because that something else triggers a response within us that we're usually unconscious to. And then we take action based on that. So let's use your example a little bit. So you have this thought, your mind recognizes that you've gone lost in the thought. In that recognition, there's probably a wave of discomfort in the body, unhappiness, discomfort, something displeasurable in the body, which leads you to move. But that discomfort is what we sit with. And without the moving, it'll go, right? And you become conscious of that. And that's interesting because it's, you become conscious of how you respond to yourself when you fail. And that's a wonderful thing to do. You know, uh, and we have unconscious reactions to stuff like that all the time. I'll share one with you that I had. Um, I was sitting, and this may happen to some of you now, but I was sitting, I was in I was really happy to be in this meditation retreat. It was like three day retreat, which is really a wonderful amount of time. It's not like 10 days, three days, really nice. You know, you go in, you get out, nice. But I was sitting there, and all of a sudden, you sitting there, focused on the breath, doing anapanasati. And then all of a sudden, I would find myself like this. And then I would like slouching, like my mouth open. in a kind of a really sort of like mildly embarrassing, somewhat humiliating position. And I would be like, okay, let's go back to Anapanasati. And I would straighten up, bring my attention back to the breath. And then I would be like, and I'm like, what? Here it is again. And I went up to the teacher and I was like, so... Like I'm sitting and I'm trying to remain equanimous to what happens, but all of a sudden I find myself slouching with my mouth open, drooling. (laughs) So, what do I do? And then his response to me was if you are in a lot of pain, why don't you just take a little rest? Now and then. And I was like, excuse me. I didn't say anything about, like, I'm drooling. I didn't say anything about pain, but I didn't, I'm, like, trying to be a good student. I was like, oh, thank you. Oh, that was great. Thank you. <laughs> and then I left, and I was like, and I was mad at this point. I was like, back to my room, I was like,
1: this guy thinks I'm in pain. I'm not in pain.
0: I was, really, I was like, upset. And then I'm like, all right, well, I don't need your choice. Like, what if I, all right, this guy thinks I'm in pain. Let me see. if there pain? So then I set myself a mission because he thought I was in pain. And I, I, I don't. I really didn't know what to do. So I thought, okay, you are going to be vigilant for the moment before you start to drool and slouch. So you're going to discover that. So then I was like, okay, here I'm going to discover that. I'm just and I like next meditation. I was like, here. I'm like, it was like a lion waiting for my prey. It's like here I am. Super mindful, super vigilance was already working. And then here's what's interesting. I right at the moment I started to feel my pelvis rotate under and then I caught it. No, don't do that. I just said no. And then maybe five seconds later, pain. And then I was like, pain, this guy was right. That wasn't pain, but I had an unconscious reaction to pain. Which was like, well, so not only was I not aware of the pain, I was reacting to something happening within my body without even being aware of it so that I was only aware of it when the reaction became manifest. And this is the story of what we call the samskara, right? One of the types of the samskaras, those samskaras, those patterns, which we only see when they fructify or manifest and bear their fruit. But we don't see the roots growing and the sprouting and the then and all this sort of stuff. And then suddenly we're here. I'm massaging with my tongue out. It's embarrassing. We don't realize, oh, there was a pain. And you have this unconscious reaction to pain where you dissociate and you tune out and you black out. And you only come to when, you know, it's too late for you to do anything. And you know, that's a pattern in life. So I was like, okay. This dude was right. <laughs> I was in pain. I to, and then I'm like sending him meta. Like I'm very sorry. Like I'm sorry. We're very right. I just sit with my pain, keep my tongue in my mouth. Everybody's happy, All right. So you may find yourself suddenly sleeping. Is that why? I don't know. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you had also like an intense asana practice this morning. But there's a lot of unconsciousness that we're working with when we work with the mind. That's why it can be very, very difficult. So whenever you find yourself wanting to react, then I feel like the work starts. What are reactions? You know, changing positions, a common reaction.
1: Mm-hmm. Make
0: sense? Okay. One more question? Sure. Then we can sit. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you do fall asleep, first of all, you're only going to fall asleep if you're really asleep. You're only going to do that if you're leaning against something, which is one of the reasons why I said we should not lean against the wall or lie down unless we are already in quite a lot of pain for one reason or another. So what will happen is if you're if you're sitting, trying to concentrate the mind, and you start to fall asleep, it'll look something like this. <laughs> you'll like, you know, you'll feel like lean, you'll lurch forward, and then you'll catch yourself because we have some sort of automated response of self-preservation, and then you'll wake up, you'll be like, wow, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Whoa. So open your eyes for a moment, like stare at the lamp and then close your eyes back to anapanasati. It just happens over and over again. It's fine. No problem. You know, no problem. Five minutes is the minimum amount of time to make a qualitative difference in the nature of your thoughts, a measurable statistically significant difference when being subjected to scientific measurements. Um, so if you want to start a sitting practice, What I was going to have you do on Monday was take a commitment to sit for at least five minutes for the duration of the course. I'm going to do that for the next two days. You can, Um, but maybe you can take it home also. At 20 minutes is the minimum amount of time it takes to enter a deeper space of relaxation. Like a deeper level of the mind is a 20-minute mark. At around the 40-minute mark, we dial down one level deeper or we stand at the threshold of what can potentially be an even deeper level of the mind. So it's around the 40 minute mark where we start to be able to cross the bridge from the conscious to the subconscious mind. When we can work with our most refined and subtle states of being. Mm -hmm. Mm. I saw a question. Let me see if I can find it. Also, if you have a question, we can find it. Oh, good question. Uh, I like this. Azuri, who's watching, uh, has a good question. Um, And this is, uh, if I swallow, does it count as moving? (laughs) And I know when someone asks this question that they're a very serious student. You know, you're really trying. (laughs) So great. That's awesome, first of all. You know, number two, we want to be aware of the sensations but you don't want to uh, like let that take you into um, unreasonable behavior. So at some moment, if the saliva starts to accumulate, there will be a natural response of the body to swallow. So this is something very interesting to observe, if you can observe it. The thinking mind can often get in the way of this. So we observe, saliva is building. Shall I swallow? <laughs> What if I don't swallow? Then I'll drool. Well, everyone's eyes are closed. Who cares? Maybe I shall drool, you know? And so then we go into this spin. And if we were to just let the body take its course, the body would swallow when it needs to swallow. Have you ever drooled randomly walking around? You know, but you swallow randomly, right? So if left to take its natural course, the body takes care of itself. Right? So, when only when we become, like, self-conscious, we obstruct the natural occurrences of the body. Now, if you start to feel you're about to drool, please consciously swallow. And that does not count to shifting the posture. But, the same thing can happen with sneezing and coughing. Sneezing, 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 I'm gonna sneeze, I'm gonna sneeze, I'm gonna sneeze, I'm gonna sneeze, and sneeze you know that thing if I'm gonna sneeze and you don't sneeze so sometimes I, and I've had this experience in sitting where you can experience the sensations of leading up to a sneeze and then it dissolves then it comes again and sometimes it sneezes sometimes it's just mm, it's very interesting and the same thing with coughing there's like a sensing mm,
1: mm, mm, it dissolves <laughs> you yeah. know
0: and what's interesting because sometimes it's coughing, right? Um, you know, so in that way, we want to sort of let the body's natural functions kind of do their things. Um, what we don't want to do that kind of counts as changing your posture, which is a way that some people kind of do a, like a, so like, so this, is a, this is a common kind of like, I'm not going to change my posture, but I'm going to change my posture. So this is like, I, I did this on my first meditation retreat. I was like, not changing the posture means this was my mistake in the first retreat I did, you know, keeping the same posture, meaning like keeping my hands and my legs in the same position, but I could do that. Right. I could just puff my chest up a little bit and then I didn't change my posture. I'm in the same pose. I could go a little over here (laughs) and I could go a little over there, but I haven't moved my hands or my legs. So technically, I'm in the same position. Now, that is a cheating. Okay? That is changing it. Because you could have a whole little, like, experience. You're like, well, I'm not. Technically, my feet and my knees are still in the same place. So let's see how much I can do. They don't know. When we say, like, don't change your posture, it means don't move. Right.
1: Wow. If you're here and you have a tendency to
0: go here. Yes, then you have to sit up straight. Correct. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. If you notice that you've slouched, the you slouch and then come back up. Because the slouching was unconscious. So then you have caught yourself in an unconscious behavior. Come back up. And look for the moment before the slouch, like I shared before we were sitting. You know, and what you'll find is the slouch is a response to some pain, you know, mm-hmm. or the slouch is a sleepiness. You know, sure, you have a question? So, the moment
1: before, uh-huh. it's like a deep moment, like, like moment before you like. Uh uh-huh. realize, yeah. realize it and you go back to the position. Correct. But, but like those seconds before that it's here.
0: Mm-hmm. So the, the moments before the slouch are numerous things that you could possibly experience. And that is for you to discover for yourself. Here are a couple of possible scenarios. The moment before the slouch could be pain, most likely some pain, some unconscious response to that. The moment before the slouch could also be um, a really deep meditative space thoughtlessness, wordlessness, emptiness, what we call the shunyata experience, is this like dissolution of consciousness, which if you don't meditate, your mind is programmed to experience in kind of, you know, habituated response at the moment before we fall asleep. So then we're sitting, ah, then suddenly we concentrate so much, so then we move into this thoughtless, wordless state, and then like a dog salivating for food, we're just trained to thoughtlessness. Oh, I know what to do. And then we like knock ourselves out. Time for bed. You know, and then we're, oh my God. I mean, and then, so it's like, we don't, we're not trained in that moment. Um, other thing that thought that the slouching can be is um, if uh, we're thinking, we can actually be distracted. You know, suddenly we're here, we're here, we're here. What I'm going to eat for dinner later. Dinner later. Oops, where was I? You don't even know. Drink avocados flying through your mind screen. Have no idea. And then suddenly you're oh, why was I slouching? I don't know. I don't know. But your mind was on automatic planning. Guacamole, guacamole. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Could be that's, that's the other one. The other one, the thoughtless wordness is just falling asleep. Absolutely. So it's for you to experience what that is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Other questions? Any other questions? Sure. Is there a better time to meditate? Is there a good time to meditate? So, first, number one, um, if you're going to integrate this into your asana practice, you don't have a seated meditation practice. Sometimes people find that have a dedicated ashtanga practice that the best time to add in some sitting is five minutes at the end of practice. Then you don't have to make a new thing. You already do this thing every day. Then you can just do five more minutes of this thing you do every day. And this is what I found the easiest place for many people to start a new meditation practice. All right. And then you're kind of already calm at that point. You write already. Uh, uh, you get up and then it helps you extend the good space of the practice. You take five minutes of sitting at the end. It's five minutes more in the subtle space five minutes more away from the phone, you know, away from talking. You know, if you have this experience, We have this really great practice, and you get up, you start talking to people and it's gone. So those five minutes can help you kind of steep in the the, the, the goodness that you worked in the asana practice. Over time, um, that's useful. First thing in the morning, last thing at night. Those are also two really good times. But then it's difficult to make a new habit. So I often tell people I have, Establish asana practice, do that for a little bit. And then, if you start taking meditation on as a discipline, uh, like another discipline, first thing in the morning, last thing at night. Those are the two most effective times to do sitting. And that's true if you don't have asana practice. Asana practice can open that door quite well. First thing in the morning, because your mind hasn't fully awakened yet. So you can kind of like catch it before the new programs are there. Last thing in the day, because you can kind of unravel some of the um, programs that have been running throughout the day. Mm-hmm. One More question? Um, I
1: have a lot of sensation around the chest, like tightness, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and like, I really I, I don't know if it's like, I like don't kind of that, like it takes at least like 15 minutes or so that dissipates. You know, so, like all of them, that.
0: Well, you just observe tightness in the chest, back to the breath. Tightness in the chest, back to the breath. So whenever a sensation comes up, so it's like, okay, I have this tightness in the chest that I'm sitting with, and what do I do with that? As long as we're in that state of what do I do with that, we're out of our equanimity. So, and we want to do some, like, basic checks, of course. You know, so we, you know, this is where the, this is where awareness comes in with wisdom and compassion. So we do some basic checks, like, number one, am I having a heart attack?
1: No.
0: No. All right. I'm good. Uh, number two, am I having asthma attack? No. Good. Number three, I'm having any sort of attack whatsoever, that <laughs> I would need medical attention. No. Okay. So just regular tightness in the chest. Back to the breath. Tightness in the chest. No, oh, it's still there. Back to the breath. Tightness. In the, it could be tight the whole time. Back to the breath. Great that it dissipates, but it might not. Back to the breath. So the intention with the equanimity practice is not to try to get the tightness to go away or to have. It's just to observe what is back to the breath, observe what is back to the tightness in the chest, short, shallow breathing, short, shallow breathing, short, shallow breathing, shallow breathing, hot breathing, shallow, breathing, hot, breathing shallow, breathing, hot, breathing. So it's equanimity is not calm. Equanimity is just purely observant. You know? and this helps us out in our practice so much you know how many times we go in our practice and we're like uh, I'm tight let's fix it you know and then what happens when we do that injury I'm tight let's fix it let's stretch it let's do this, try to do that and then the body's like listen you're tight I'm tight for a reason and okay you know whereas if you just went in and you observe the oh, body is tight I take five breaths I jump back the body is weak also and I try to jump through Could not do that either. Let's do the other side. Also tight. Look, I did not jump back. Now I try again, some other posture. Also, I'm bad at this. (laughs) And the practice is over. (laughs) You know, that's okay. So this is the idea of equanimity. How was practice? Wonderful. (laughs) So nice. Wow, what happened? I was, I could do nothing. (laughs) You know, great. Now we've really accomplished something. <laughs> you know because when we have a good practice you know what i mean i was, proud, I was so good i did this i lifted up i squeezed this i did that i got this I, uh, really it was good You're, look how attached you are to that is that good you know right oh it's practice but I was so bad look i was so heavy This uh, was. Just, i couldn't do this uh, you know mm-hmm. your question in your personal practice do you typically
1: do like in Hour of the meditation morning mm. and uh,
0: evening, and also do corporate pranayama. Mm. Yeah, I sit every morning, every evening. I sit the full hour in the morning. I don't always sit the full hour in the evening, but I sit every morning, every evening. And I do pranayama at the end of asana every day. Not long pranayama, um, but the, I made the commitment to myself, like, I don't know, seven years ago, that I would sit as long as I was doing movement. So if I'm going to, because I, I felt like I was doing too much asana. Like I was just like two hours of asana. And then, you know, I felt like well, I'm sitting in the morning, I'm sitting in the evening, but I felt like they were like truncated because I was spending so much time on asana, that I did not have enough time for my day. So I was like, okay, I'm going to sit an hour in the morning. So then I'm going to practice for an hour for sure asana. And then I'm going to sit in the evening. So then I would like kind of like watch the clock and be like okay, practice for an hour and a half I'm going to sit for half an hour this evening, minimum, and try to, I try, so I, I do that as kind of like a discipline. This- I would like to sit an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, but you know, I have a husband. <laughs> he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm sitting. Can you go away? You know, He's like, you're not very good at it, are you? I'm like, you're my husband and you're staring at me. like, I'm wondering if you're okay. Like, uh, you know what I mean? I've been—I've literally been sitting. I sit in the evenings. I sit upstairs, and then Tim sometimes will walk up the stairs and stare at me. And I'm like, what? Like, of course I'm going to open my eyes because you just walked up the stairs. Like, do you need? Are you okay? Do you you know? Like, it's just—it's just—it's—and then—and then of course he's in some weird position. I'm just, And it's hilarious. And I start laughing. He's like, <laughs> I'm like, why well, did I lock the door? So they, 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 they say that it's hard to sit with a, a family life. They say, you know, this is the husband. Imagine the child. <laughs> Maybe when the child would understand more. I don't know. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You know? So it was one question from uh, Valeria at home. Let's see. Valeria says, I've been doing asana for more than 10 years and sitting on and off. Um, let's see, where do I start if I want to learn and apply all the limbs of yoga? Um, she says, I found, it har- I found it hard to stay conscious without a community. I live in a small town in Sweden and haven't found a community. So I would imagine that everyone here is probably really enjoying the feeling of community. Is that true? And that many of you practice alone, right? Some of you, I mean, I don't know, you don't, but some of, many of you probably are on your own and get that feeling of passion on my own you know, and I know what that's like. I mean, I, I started, um, practice here in Miami years ago, um, when there wasn't a strong spiritual community and I did the majority of my practice, as self-practice and which means like, um, more than 20 years ago when I was going my first times back and forth in India, I was living with my parents and I had, I didn't practice anyone. There was like no one Mysore room in Miami and it was, uh, very far away. And, Led by someone who wasn't, uh, wonder, wasn't a teacher I connected with, and I kind of felt like I'd found my teachers in India also, so I didn't really need another teacher that I didn't connect with anyway. So I decided that the you know I was doing self practice. So that meant that I would I would move my parents' car from the garage. And they would practice in the garage, sometimes with their dog, which was fun but not so <laughs> wonderful. And sometimes their like peacocks would come in. I would be like, what do I do with that?
1: This is a giant bird what does it want?
0: You know what I mean? My, my parents would feed them. And so then it would, and I didn't, I'd, like it took me a while to realize like, oh, this thing needs to be fed, but I'm trying to jump back. Like, I, you know, so yeah, a lot of distractions. So the, so the thing that's, that's very, very useful is if you're practicing on your own, recognize that to take time to connect in, whether it's online connecting in to kind of like a virtual community and then take time to go to a workshop, go to a retreat, go to something where you can kind of like tap in and then you'll be filled up with that. And that'll sustain you for a period of time. And then you can come back. And that's what I would do with going to India. We'd go to India and I felt like I would tap in to my teacher, to my community, and then I would go back home and I would teach and I would practice in my parents' garage. I, I, and, and then I would do that also, like when I first met um, my husband, when I first met Tim, um, we would, go, I was like, I remember the first time I spent six months in Denmark, I didn't know anybody and I didn't speak the language. I mean, almost everybody speaks English, but I really felt like I like I have no one here. I'm completely on my own and I would practice on my own. There was no real MISO room um, there at the time. I also really had no idea how to get around. So it was like, well, everything is in Danish and I'm just going to unroll my mat right here. So I really know what the solitary practice is like and how important it is to have these touch points where you can connect in with community and to have some online support is so, so helpful. Even just to do like once a week online class and have like some connect in, you know, like if you're a stronger practice to check in with the like the Saturday rituals, which are online, or just to check in to some online class here. And there's really, really helpful. And then to make time to actually come in person. Those two things I think can really, really help um, kind of integrate everything. And in that way, even if you're the only one practicing out in your little outpost of the world, then that light is illuminating those around you. So it's benefiting those around you, even if you feel that it's sort of like a hard and lonely path. And the real real truth of it is that the Sangha or the community is a very important part, but it's not the whole part. And as long as you can get some community feeling, it should be enough to sustain. Mm -hmm. They say that you know, the, the classical teaching says it's 25% our own effort, 25% the teacher, 25% the sangha, and then 25%, what's the last part? Can you guess? What do you think? 35. Well, the sangha is kind of an environment. God. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> It's the teacher.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's hard to guess this last one. Any other guesses? Hard to guess. Hard to guess. You get your own effort. Well, just think about that. My own effort is only 25%. Hmm, I can do really badly. <laughs> if I got a good teacher, a good community, huh, I can be a really bad student. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Because you don't have a strong Sangha because you get a good teacher. You connect in here and they're all good. And now you have to put more effort yourself. 25%, the last 25%, is something cannot be rushed and it's usually considered to be the passage of time. Mm-hmm. You know, like, Oh, you've got it all. Phil, I've seen it. I've seen it before. The students, so much energy, enthusiasm, great teacher, great community, but they don't wait for the passage of time. Six months uh, quit. Right? <laughs> Others, you know, like they bop along here and there, they check in a little, but they take it on. This is my practice. This is my practice. This is my practice. They check in, they get their little dose of inspiration and then they, they take it, They keep going. And so I, I see people sometimes that, you know, at first they were, they were slow to get started, but 10 years later, they got their check. They know what they need to get their community check-in. They know what they need um, in terms of their own effort and they have the relationship with the teacher. 10 years later, really grounded in the practice. And it's so beautiful to see when students do that, when they, when they stay the course. And this is why the relationship also with the teacher is important. It's someone you can build a long-term relationship with. Because, you know, when you have, when you, when you, have a, you know, someone you can't check in with or, or, or you lose your teacher, you can feel completely lost. I remember when Patavi Joyce died, I felt so lost for some period of time, you know, and I just felt like, what am I going to do now? You know, I I practice with Sharaji. You know, I, I love him. I think he's amazing. Um, and I recommend everyone to practice with him. But there, were, there was a good period of time after Potaphi Joyce died that I just felt like, now what? You know? Now what? What am I going to do now? You know, and then I realized, look, I don't need to replace him. You know, he was my teacher and I connected with him very deeply over many years. And for me, he was a really wonderful teacher. And I can still get a lot of benefit from, you know, practicing with strategy, but I don't need to replace Patavi Joyce. I don't need to replace my teacher. And so that's something that is often not talked about, is that, you know, if you have a teacher and then that teacher is gone for one reason or another, you don't necessarily need a replacement. You know, you can have someone that supports your practice, but if they say if you've had the benefit of meeting a really a teacher that you've spent 10, 20 years with, something like that, it could be enough. They might not always be there with you. At that point, you may also be teaching yourself. It's important to have a teacher, someone you check in with, but you don't necessarily need to like be in a race to find a new guru, kind of thing. You know what I mean? Makes sense? Okay. Any last questions from everyone here practically? Sure. Zella, go ahead. So the reason I constantly lose my practice, so not, I actually
1: practice on the dedicated. Yeah. So, I have all my life Yeah. How do I create the space for it? long like, When I went home in January, it was cold. Like, <laughs> <I'm back. laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like, then I just shrank into it,
0: right? And the longer. And so mm-hmm. it. Makes sense. So how do you maintain your practice in the chaos of everyday life? First of all, we have to have wisdom and compassion. And we have to have equanimity. So this is where the meditation practice comes back to support our asana, where we realize, oh, look, my life is chaos right now. So, I'm not going to do what I can do when I'm away from my life. Today, I'm going to do sun salutations. That's it. I'm going to do sun salutations every day. That's it. That's
1: it's it.
0: Like, really get worse. Yeah, yeah, but that's why equanimity. Look, they're deteriorating. <laughs> <laughs> Look, now I do the whole thing on my knees. And now I do child's pose instead of the downward dog. Tomorrow, I'm going to bring a bolster, right? And you can think, I'm going to lie down on the bolster and breathe, you know? And that's okay. The thing is just get on the mat every day. Absolutely. It's still practice. That's what's key. It's still practice. That's the key. You just get on the mat. If you don't have time, whatever time you have, you devote to it. You let it be good. However the body feels, you observe that, you let it be good. And it's going to change and shift. If it's very cold, you also put the heater. This can be helpful you don't have a little space heater, you put a little space heater. <laughs> Get a new one. <laughs> a little space heater, broken space heater, you need a new one. You know, there are solutions to that. Also, sun salutations, you just, then if it's, you don't, you don't feel the inner heat in Ashtanga Yoga, it, you do more sun salutations and you don't move on until you feel warmed up. And if you never feel warmed up, you only do that and lie down. Make sense? Many people quit the practice because they have in their mind what it was. You know, but last week I was doing this. Now I'm home. So weird. It doesn't feel good. Let me stop. But that's the equanimity. Oh, observe. Look, it's bad now. (laughs) Still, it's such a good practice. So wonderful. I did it. Look, I did five minutes. Wonderful. You know, rather than, you know, well, if I can't do everything and I'm not going to this, I'm not going to, I better do nothing. Mm -hmm. The continuity is what's key. Even if you just go on the mat and stand there, it's also fine. Just the repetition of, I do this every day, I do this every day, I do this every day. And to, it's the structure. Correct. Power. It's the structure. Yeah, like brushing the teeth. Like, you know, we're, we're, it's, like, you, have to, you have to train the kid to brush the teeth. But then once they do that, once it's trained, like, mm. and if they don't do it, then they're like, I have to do it. And so you want it to feel like that. Yeah. Too bad we don't have, like, electric practice. Because, you know, like the electric toothbrush... <laughs> You don't really need to pay attention, it's just, it's just like doing its thing. So if we could somehow <laughs> like electric practice, like electric yoga mat, like zzz, maybe <laughs> it goes jump around. <laughs> I don't think you should try that. You got one more question? Sure. All right, maybe this is the
1: last question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there any kind of online resource or anywhere I can where I can find different
0: micro rooms around the world. Oh, around the world, I don't know. Um, but um how 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 different time zone like everywhere. everywhere everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. So what I would what I would usually do, and now it's like now now there's like many more Ashanga like teachers, which is great. But what what I would probably do is I would look in the country that you're in, um, or the time zone that you're in and kind of like Find a, a class that can work within that time zone. I know, like Miami Life Center has three Mysores each day online. And so then th- that can work with a lot of time zones. The, and um, uh, we even have people from Asia joining in the evening. And then the Europeans are joining the morning ones usually. But if you want the morning time zone, um, like what I would do is what I would do, um, say, I would do online the same thing that I would do uh, if I was. If I was in, say, if I went to London, I would find the certified teacher in London and I would look them up and see if they have class. And like, I've to know that, that I would see my friend Hamish, but that's like, I know the people in the community like, that I would reach out to. So what I would do if I were you is find the certified teacher in the time zone that you're in and see what online offerings they have. Do you know? So that way, if say you're in Asia Um, you could look at Japan, I mean, Asia is quite large, but like, let's say you're in Japan, then you could look like Japan, Korea, um, and maybe even like Beijing, Hong Kong, and so kind of like that vicinity of, um, you know, Eastern Asia in that way. And then if you are in, like, if you, if you're in the Middle East, you could start with Dubai and then see around what's in the Dubai time zone. And, And in that way, I think you can find Australia. You could find Australia, who's like the whole, whole like little nugget of Australia and then figure out like the certified teacher and start in Sydney and look around there to see. So that's what, that's what I would do. Um, but again, you may also find like one place that has like my, again, if you're within say like California to Europe, you can probably find a class at Miami life center, but if Asia and middle East or Australia, you may need to, uh, kind of do a little more research. If it's city to city, again, if you go into um, either Ashtanga.com or um, Sharajee's website, you can find the list of all the teachers. So you can look there as well. And to, just to make it easier, that's why I say to find the certified teachers because they're like this can, it can be like overwhelming now with authorized teachers. You can look and be like, so I'm going to look at the authorized teacher in Japan. You can be like, ah, well, oh, there's like 35. Oh, I don't even know. Wow, there's all these Japanese cities. I don't even know how to pronounce them. So then if you can go to the certified teachers, less of them. So then you can can narrow it down in an easier manner. Make sense. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, Omstars, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime.